If you are older than, say, 30 years old, I invite you to think back for a moment to the dog that you had as a child, or maybe it was a friend's dog. Was this dog a regular companion? Did the dog go with you to coffee shops or to big box stores? Did it go to work with you or your parents? Or did the dog have regular appointments for fancy facials or grooming sessions at the dog salon? And what about the neighborhood dog bakery? Were you guys visitors to that? And did the dog have a wardrobe of sweaters and collars and even costumes for the holidays? Did the dog wear tracking devices or eat bespoke food that was especially formulated for him? You get where I'm going with this. I'm guessing the answer is probably no. A lot has changed. Hello, I'm James Jacobson, and today on The Long Leash, the inside story of how companion animals have not just changed us individually, but transformed our homes, culture, and the U.S. economy. My guest today is Mark Cushing, lawyer, founder, and managing partner of the Animal Policy Group and author of the book, Pet Nation. In his words, in the last 20 years, pets have gone from the backyard to sleeping on our beds. Now they're showing up in every corner of America. Pet Nation tells the story of this seismic shift in the economic, media, legal, political, and social dramas that are springing from this cultural transformation. So what is it that happened in the 1990s when things started to change? What were the forces at play that saw our dogs and pets in general become treasured members of the family? In this conversation, Mark speaks widely about the foundation of his book, Pet Nation, as well as his work to help regulate, develop policy, and provide strategic advice to animal health and veterinary clients across America. Mark Cushing, thanks so much for being with us today. Appreciate it. Follow your show and uh, nice to chat with your audience, which obviously know everything about dogs. So I suspect we'll have some dog questions. We have a pretty sophisticated dog-loving audience that, you know, don't necessarily need to understand, intuitively know what Pet Nation is. But for those who might not, what is Pet Nation? Not only is it the name of the book, but it's basically a brand that you've built to describe what? Right. Pet Nation is the title of the book meant to capture the framework of what has happened over the last 20 years in the U.S., uh, that has transformed not only how we relate to pets and, and dogs in particular, but the relationship of dogs and pets to our culture and society, where we are, how we operate, where pets are, and where you can take your dog and how we engage them. And what I mean by Pet Nation would be the same thing if you're broadcasting from Hawaii. If you have uh, Hawaii football fans, they might call themselves members of Rainbow Nation, the Rainbow Warriors. Or if you're a 49er fan, 49er Nation, the, and that term nations used in sports in a real simple but profound way. If two people walk into a bar or a Starbucks and they're both wearing 49ers jerseys or hats, they'll have a conversation. They don't know each other. They will have a conversation and it won't be how much money do you make? Where do you live? What kind of car do you drive? Where did you go to school? You know, all sorts of things that, that begin to separate people don't occur. It'll be what you think of that call last week? You know, 
Should Garoppolo start a quarterback? Is it time to put Trey Lance in? What do we think? Um, well, that's what pets do. Pets are this common element, this unifier. And I, I use Manhattan as the example where two people can walk down, you know, Fifth Avenue. If they can get around the row of six Afghans that the dog carrier or walker is, is navigating, who, by the way, expects you to go on the street, not them. Of course. When you, when you can't pass. They'll have that same conversation, you know, what's her name, what kind of breed, where'd you get the dog, what's she like to eat, what's she play with. And it, it may be an uber billionaire hedge fund manager and someone who just got off a shift at McDonald's. It doesn't matter. And, and they become friends. They don't invite each other over for Thanksgiving dinner, friends, but they are friends now. When they see each other weekly, monthly, whenever it might be, there's a common element. And they may not even know each other's names, but they know each other's no. pets' names. And that's all that matters. And and there's science behind it. Uh, there was a great study uh, not too far from Maui uh, in Perth, Australia. I'm kidding. It's probably 10,000 miles, but at least it's closer than. Well, our team at Dog Podcast Network, we have people in, in Australia who are all part of our team. So we have a very global audience. You, you love it. So the phrase is social capital of pets, which sounds like a sociologist created it, but it's actually a pretty simple term. But a study was done in Perth on the Western edge on the Indian Ocean, Perth sort of like San Diego in terms of how it looks and feels. I've been lucky enough to go there. And they tried to figure out what is the primary agent or the force that unifies and creates a community. And they went in blind. They didn't go in to prove it was this or that, but the contenders were church, school, sports, civic involvement, and how about that, pets. And I wouldn't bring this up if pets didn't win. Pets were shown to be the primary agent, reduces fear, reduces isolation, creates some bond, makes people comfortable, gets people talking to each other, takes neighbors that would never communicate and makes them comfortable and get to know at least one person and feel safer. What came in number two in social capital? I don't even remember okay. because I was so struck by number <laughs> one. I was working in the industry and thought, are you kidding? And I remember sitting in Portland, Oregon, with one of the authors of the study, and it was in 2009 or 10, I'd been involved in the industry for four or five years, and it just hit me. It's, it's not about just how fun pets are. There's a whole social force going on. So we replicated the study in San Diego, Portland, Oregon, and Nashville. Same thing came out. Even in Nashville, you know, part of the Bible Belt, it wasn't churches ahead of pets or dogs. And so part of that pet nation quality is the fact that it builds trust and lowers barriers and lowers fear levels on a social level, on a community level. Well, you know this with your, your show. For individuals that engage with pets right now with me, with my papillon over here hanging out, we know that our oxytocin level increases, which is a source of joy and relaxation and you know feeling pleasant or happy. And our cortisol level goes down, which is anxiety and stress. So there's something medical. And, you know, I always say the surge that happened over 20 years wasn't because everybody went to the library when we had libraries and checked out the book on the human-animal bond and read it and went, oh, my God, if I get a pet, I'll feel better. It wasn't that. Pets came inside for my generation. Uh, you're supposed to say you don't look like a baby boomer, but I am a boomer. You don't look like a baby boomer. Well done, Sir James. That was an excellent point. But we were the generation whose families first had pets come inside. Hmm. We were also the generation that had a lot of television shows and movies begin to show pets, the iconic Lassie, hmm. 
the favorite of all, the greatest dog in the history of the world, whose author was a friend of Charles Dickens, which is odd to think that that character goes back that far in the prior two centuries, if you will. But um, as pets came inside, and not necessarily to stay inside all day, but when, as they came inside, people began to spend more time with their dogs and cats, obviously. And I think they began to experience this thing of, wow, I just feel better when I'm hanging around Sparky. It's just, it's, it's things just go better. I'm, I'm, I'm in a good mood. They didn't say, hey, it's the oxytocin. They just felt better. They just felt better. And then because the initial studies, James, out of vet schools, it was kind of like talking about your grandmother's flu remedy. It'd be like, oh, sure, there's some medical underpinning here. This must be sponsored by one of the pet food companies, right? No. And it was laughed at and it was not taken seriously. And in the book, you recall, you know, I, I talk a fair amount about how that whole science is now a 32,000 entry collection in the Purdue Veterinary Library, studies related to the human-animal bond, which is this thing that occurs when pets and people, including, you know, people in trouble, kids with autism, it doesn't cure autism. It lowers certain communication challenges of autistic families. Seniors that aren't eating regularly in nursing homes, watching an aquarium will help guide them towards regular eating when they're not feeding themselves enough. Nine-year-olds going into cardiovascular surgery, if they're with their pet, typically their dog, the hour or two before surgery can take less medication, including pain meds, which means fewer opioids as they come out of surgery and, and, and have relief. So to me, the all-time example is 25 years ago, if you got into a hospital and saw dogs roaming around, there'd be an orderly out there saying, get the dog out right now. Everybody just stop what you're doing and chase this dog out of the building. Now dogs are in every hospital in animal-assisted therapy programs, and they're part of the treatment regime. The care protocol involves engaging with the dog. So that's the essence of what occurred because of this phenomenon I call pet nation. So, so you said 25 years ago, which is sort of the delineation point where you have described where we became pet nation. Right. And that was in you know, the late 90s. What happened? Well, what happened was the pets coming inside, the chicken or the egg there in terms of, you know, what prompted that. But, um, a lot of it was the media and two forms of media, the traditional media, TV, movies, advertisements on TV, so forth. You began to see pets displayed, lovable, laughable, loyal, helpful, courageous, brave, comic. And to me, it's all encapsulated in the car commercials by Subaru and Nissan. And James, I would love to have sat in the conference room when the CEO of those two companies were shown next year's ads, and they watched the following. They saw their car going down a California coastal highway with a golden retriever in the passenger seat, window down, hair flowing, smiling. And they said to the ad agency, okay, so where's the label of the car? Where's the mileage? You didn't tell me anything about this vehicle. And they said, yeah, what's your point? And the CEO would say, well, actually, what was your point? We're a car company, so we kind of like to have that. And they said, no, we want to associate your brand with a dog. And I mean, can you imagine the skepticism the first time somebody saw that and thought, I'm writing you a check for five million bucks for the whole NFL season for our Subaru commercials. And we don't say the word Subaru and don't tell them one feature of our car. Yeah, that's it. We just show a dog having fun 
in your vehicle. Mark, we actually interviewed on this very show on the Long Leash, the CEO of uh, TBWA, Chiat Day, who came up with that campaign. So yes, I can imagine. And we'll put a link in the show notes because that's an interesting interview. Well, I wish you would, because now I, we estimate it's close to 40% of all commercials in some capacity have an animal, usually a dog, shown. I remember in 2019, right before COVID hit, Hyundai had their holiday commercial, mm -hmm. and there were five silver Hyundais from the tallest Hyundai, that, whatever that model is, to the smallest. And in front of them were five dogs from the tallest to the smallest. And you know the point of that commercial. You weren't supposed to look at the car. It was just a prop, right? You're just supposed to look at the dog. And one of those five would tug at your heartstrings and go, oh, that looks like, and you, in the back of your mind, go, oh, it's Hyundai. So that really captured how people saw it. And I think that that led to just a sense that dogs could do more. But that's the paid media half, the social media piece, which is where the 90s comes in in the early 2000s. And obviously, you're a, a product of that and a, and a great creator in that realm. When people realized social media allowed them to become their own movie producers. Mm -hmm. So you could have a Shih Tzu in San Diego and there would be a Shih Tzu owner in Portland, Maine, that you'd never meet, but you'd share videos, you'd see each other's videos, and suddenly it'd be like, you become friends. So the isolation that to some extent, you know, this device, you know, the iPhone created, where we spend our time there and not engaged, it became a vehicle, particularly with pets, even more than babies. And I remember that change when it used to be all you would see were babies. Of course, yeah. Now, now you might see a baby, but it'd be like, quit bragging about your kid. But you're never bragging about your dog, right? There's something about sharing your dog that people are so grateful. Thank you, James. If you showed a little nine-month-old, it's like, yeah, looks like Winston Churchill. Cute. <laughs> That's happy for you. Hope everything's healthy. But get back to that, you know, terrier you have, you know, what's he up to? So the social media helped to mediate the social capital that you talked about earlier. So no longer were these two guys meeting on the street in New York, but they could be right. distance and share that lovable picture. hundred percent. And people to this day can't get enough. I mean, I think if they opened up their, you know, iPhone, went to Instagram or Facebook, whatever they go to, if they didn't see a pet, they'd wonder what happened. It'd mm -hmm. be like, wait a second. You know, am I 30 years ago that, that I wake up in the wrong decade? So that's that's a change. And, and then the most transformational thing to me became where pets and really dogs went. And I, I make the case kind of figuratively, they went out the front door to America. People weren't content to stay home. It was like, hey, I'm going to Home Depot. My dog's named Louie. Come on, Louie, we're going to Home Depot. Well, why is Louie going to Home Depot? Louie doesn't know what it is. He doesn't need to go. The answer is... And don't say it's because Louie's going to be sad when you go because you do other things and you come home. The point is, if you can get away with it, of course you take Louie. Why? Because you like hanging out with Louie. That's it. I mean, it's real simple. And it's kind of a, what we'll call it a chick magnet, or at least it's a social capital thing to, <laughs> for people to go, oh. I don't have to say that, but but Louie is, you know, papillons or, or dandies, you know, he's over here. He's on the he floor now, adorable. but he's, you know, the, ears, the ears that are, you know, like butterflies, which mm -hmm. is the French word for papillon. But uh, so, yeah, and that pushed into where? T two places in particular, the workplace and hotels. In the workplace, a great study was done, James, by, she's now a colleague of mine, Kate Carey O'Hara, PhD out of UCLA for Nationwide Pets. And she took 1,500 people that work for a company of 100 employees or more. A 1,000 of the 1,500 owned a pet, 500 were employees who didn't. 
How do they feel about working in a pet-friendly environment? And there was almost no difference. People who didn't have a pet loved their company significantly more, liked their boss more, wanted to stay longer. You know, every aspect of their experience at work was enhanced by the presence of dogs. And of course, the pet owners themselves felt the same. And it really blew the minds of a lot of major company HR departments, human resource departments, realizing that all this, oh, good God, if you bring dogs in, it's going to create a mess. There's going to be fights, blah, 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 blah. The answer was they'll like their boss better. Are you kidding me? They'll work harder just because there's a dog they can pet. Well, yeah, that's part of the experience. On the hotel side, you see it obviously in Hawaii. My favorite is a brand that I don't think they have a Honolulu or Maui hotel they made, but called Kempton. Oh, sure. I've stayed in a lot, especially in the East Coast, D.C. Yeah. I'm originally from D.C. But they started in San Francisco. In fact, Kempton discovered Wolfgang Puck. Bill Kempton was the first hotel guy that said people go to hotels to sleep, not eat, <laughs> and they go to restaurants to eat, not sleep. So he would carve out in San Francisco in 10 hotels a corner and say to a chef, this is yours. Do whatever you want with it. Don't use our colors. Don't link to our brand. It's all yours. I want people to have a good time there, and I want my guests to have a good time at my hotel, and they'll meet up. Don't worry. And Kempton Hotels now, many of them, if not all of them, they have a special floor reserved for non-pet owners. Now, what if I told you 25 years ago, imagine a time when you went into a hotel and there'd be you know, floor number four for non-pet owners only. In other words, the rest of the place is run crazy with pets, mainly dogs. But we'll let you have this little strip because you might be allergic to be respectful or you just don't like pets, whatever. But you know, we won't ban you from our hotel, but just understand this hotel is basically designed for people that want to bring your pets. But they're kind of an outlier, right? I mean, they don't charge pet fees. You assume that right. you can bring your pet there and that you know the people who don't like pets are going to be on one floor. But Marriott, the global Marriott brand, James, is a pet-friendly brand. So it's it's not like a little niche coffee house anymore. I mean, it's it's really the mainstays have learned that it just makes business sense. It's not because they necessarily love pets. It's just the people you turn away, just like if you want to hire millennials, have a pet-friendly workplace. Hmm. If you want to build an apartment today, brand new apartment, I'll just gamble right now. The latest apartment opened up in Maui, I'll bet you it's pet-friendly, unless it's a senior-only apartment but even seniors like pets, not all think they can keep up with them. But uh, so that, in an essence, is my book. And then I spend quite a bit of time on the problems, the political and legal issues, which I get involved with, triggered by all this change. You know, change doesn't happen without bumps in the road and, and walls and, and opponents and, and, and issues. So it's, it's been, for me, a surprising career in the legal, regulatory, political side of it that I solved a problem for the industry in 2006 and thought, well, that was fun. I'll, you know, I'll move on to other things. And, you know, 15 years later, I've, I've got the Animal Policy Group. What was that first issue in 2006 that you were hired to do? Yeah. See if you remember this issue of microchipping. Of course. What was the issue? So I know your audience knows this, but, you know, the microchip, that little rice kernel, mm -hmm. in effect, you put in your shoulder blade. That allows you to forever, if you have the right scanner, well, that's the issue. There was a company that had a proprietary technology, and you could only read their chip with their scanner and vice versa. Yeah, and so it kind of defeats the purpose if we're trying to use chips to let anybody whose dog runs away or cat be linked to their owner. Why would we have proprietary technology that doesn't connect? 
So I got a solution through Congress and it was for a coalition of the whole industry. So I had the fortune, if I'd lost, it would have been the misfortune of having the entire industry either observe and go, great job or you suck. And fortunately it was in the, the first category but I didn't know if I'd have any more to do with the industry. It was, it was just, you know, it was, a, it was a client of my former law firm in Portland, which Banfield, you know, the pet hospitals that sure. are all over the country. Anyway, that led to, how about this? And then a phone call, could you do that? And, but at the time it was a very sleepy, I call it a sideshow that pets and particularly veterinary medicine was kind of a sidelight to things. And well now pets are center stage. And that pulled everything tied to pets, nutrition, veterinary, you know, pharmaceutical, all became big time important because it had to do with pets. And frankly, the veterinary side of it, James, wasn't ready for that. They are now the beneficiaries of this surge, but they didn't see it coming and not to be criticized for that. They just didn't see it coming and they weren't ready to go when demand hit you know, a curve that hasn't slowed down. We'll get to veterinarians in a, in a moment because I'm fascinated with that and, and your prognostications for the industry, which are pretty interesting. But let's first talk about some of the legal stuff. In New Jersey, for example, you have the right in any rental unit to have a dog. But people in New Jersey didn't know that. For a senior. Okay, seniors. Any senior facility financed privately or publicly must be dog-friendly when I learned that, it was a 1996 piece of legislation. I learned this in 2009 or 10, so 14, 15 years later. And I've been involved in that issue of access to pet-friendly housing. Well, isn't that great? Let's see what the experience was in New Jersey. Can we just tell the rest of the country, here's how it worked in New Jersey, follow their lead. I couldn't find one person, James, I couldn't find one person, not in the political system, the legislature, animal welfare groups, Sorry, when I had my staff on this, I said, I want you to call the whole damn state if you have to. Somebody has to know about this. And what I discovered was nobody knew about it and nobody enforced it. So it was sort of buried in the code and then they just weren't enforcing. So particularly picture a low-income senior, maybe a widow. She's 70, 75, has a cat that means everything to her. And you think she's got a lawyer walking in the door with her when she carries a cat in its container, you know, and they say, excuse me, no pets. I mean, she doesn't have a copy of the law with her. She doesn't have a lawyer that says, hey, time out. Here is section 9.3 of the code. No, she just has to either go somewhere else, put her cat down. Often that happened uh, or took it back to a shelter. So that remains a significant issue. And it's, I'm going to guess, true in every state, you know, including Hawaii, where you have low-income pet owners confronted with, uh, and the most dramatic case I know was in Napa. And a good friend of mine knew this person, so I'm not, this isn't, you know, some fictional sweet Napa wine story. A homeless man lived under a bridge, and he had a large dog. I don't know if it was German Shepherd, but it was a, you know, 100-plus pound dog. And that was his life. That's his best friend. And he finally won the lottery to get into new public housing in Napa. And he goes, he literally goes the day to check in and they look and say, no pets. Where do you think he lives today? Where does he live? Under the bridge. Yes. He's under a bridge. He wasn't going to leave his dog. He wasn't going to euthanize his dog. He wasn't going to do anything but be with his dog, his best friend. So he gets to live under a bridge. And so 
I've talked to a major city's public housing director, I'll leave the city anonymous, and I said, are you aware of the laws regarding access? No. I said, well, that's pretty interesting. Do you care about pet access in your facilities? Well, it's not really a priority of ours. And we, we have other things we're focused on. We have an issue about smoking and young pregnant women. I said, that's a great issue. You can have dogs in an apartment and worry about smoking with young pregnant mothers, okay? They're, they're not mutually exclusive. That's not how she saw it in the sense that uh, that's just not a priority. And I said, well, it's, 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 it's better than a priority. It's the law, okay? But is anybody enforcing it? No. The thing was, I spent 15 minutes with her sharing some of the things I've already shared with you about why pets matter. Mm-hmm. Particularly, take a low-income senior and the resources they don't have could anything matter more than a pet? You know, they don't have a second home. They don't have a hot car. They don't have a European trip plan. They aren't learning how to do some cool surfboard trick. They're, you know, this is their life. You know, do you think that might make the back to social capital, the atmosphere of the apartment a little more positive, the safety factors a little more positive? I mean, all those features not on their list. So that's a lot of work left to be done. I was happy to scold some people on that issue in the book. They, they deserved it. Uh, at least I think so. Next on The Long Leash, Mark Cushing shares more of his insights on how we became a pet nation, and he talks about the time that he scolded the Pope. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Everpup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the ever pup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Mark Cushing, you are an incredible advocate for people having pets in their lives. So much so that there was a time when you actually scolded the Pope over some views that he held about pets. Yes, I did. My Yeah, the Pope. You have to talk. I'm glad you're raised that. So tell us about that. My mother, you know, who passed away at 94, you know, devout Irish Catholic, and she had on her coffee table for the last three years of her life in assisted living, the Time Magazine cover photo of Pope Francis I. This was the all-star of popes to her. And I wrote a blog in 2016, I think, James, before mom passed away in, I guess, 2019. So she was aware. I said, you know, he, he made a very interesting comment in an interview. Well, then I later learned that he repeated it in two different sermons. So here's the Pope's theory. Now, let's start with his name. If you're not Catholic, you may not know that whatever your real name is, James Jacobson, if James becomes Pope, he has to pick a name. And the name has to be a saint. And if the name's been used like John has 22 times, then you become Pope John the 23rd. Well, he picked Francis the first, and it wasn't just Francis. There have been a lot of Francis's. He picked Francis of Assisi, who's the patron saint of animals. Okay, can we just get that right out there? I so think we can all agree on that, yeah. Now, he's in Italy. Assisi's, you know, less than, maybe it's 100 miles from Rome. So you, you're pretty sure he had the research and the data that told him Francis of Assisi was known for love of animals. And every statue of St. Francis, of which there are many around the country at churches, one in Manhattan, one, you know, I've seen them in many places. Uh, Santa Fe is one of my favorites in, in New Mexico, their, their main cathedral is St. Francis of Assisi. And there's always, you know, six animals on his shoulder and birds on his head and everywhere. So he gives an interview to an Argentinian journalist. He's from Argentina, from Buenos Aires. And he says, you know, um, pets are like automatic love. It's programmed love. It's not real love. And it's bad for people to be too into their pets, to be too engaged with their pets, because it, it saps their energy and capacity to love and care for their fellow human beings. Now, that's a zero-sum theory of life, as opposed to, do you think somebody who's pretty grumpy, who's softened by how much he loves his little pug, might be a little easier to get along with, might be, frankly, a little more generous and the answer to that is, of course, that's true, but there's no evidence to the contrary. There's also no evidence that people that love dogs give less to charity, donate less of their time to charity. And so that was his point, that you're not helping the needy, you take care of your dog. Well, guess what? There's a whole concept that you can judge a society by the way it treats its animals. Excellent. My very point. Very good point. And, and the idea that the time you spent with a pet should be devoted to someone in need. Well, if that's the case, then why do we have nice restaurants? Why do we let people go on nice vacations? They should all stay home and get up in the morning and go to the local wherever and take care of their fellow citizens. And I'm not trying to be, you know, too much of a smart aleck in saying that, but, but that's the premise of that argument. And then he had to have a clincher to it. He said, and woe be the couple, woe be the married couple that, are heading for a long, lonely life if they choose the companionship of animals over children. And to me, that was just absolutely over the top, rude, didn't recognize why people may or may not have children. But to put animals in that context, if you choose one or the other, if, some, if a couple chooses to have pets only, that has nothing to do with their choice of whether they have children or not. If a millennial couple decide to have 
two puppies before they have a boy and a girl, that's not a competition. That's just a decision in their life at that stage. So I decided that he needed to be kind of smacked upside his head, so to speak. And I did it, as you remember, a little bit tongue in cheek with some humor, but I also just called him out and said that theory just doesn't have any any foundation to it. And I'm very surprised that that would be his view that he's repeated. I kept waiting for, you know, to get a phone call from some archbishop saying, hey, uh, knock it off. But it hasn't uh, hasn't happened yet. May, may happen. Not yet. So as far as you know, there's been no evolution in his perspective on that. No, and I don't know whether there's been notation made upstairs, you know, that uh, if, if a guy shows up, uh, no. Anybody? <laughs> Mr. Cushing, we've been expecting you. Just to see if there's any pets in hell. We'll let them know. Uh, We'll let that play out. But I always laugh at my mom. I'm sure, you know, if there is a heaven and she's in heaven, she's like, God, don't ask him about that business of the Pope. I, I don't know what got into Mark, but. Uh, Sorry, mom. And, that, you know, our podcast. It's, it's a good story. Our podcast is heard around the world and maybe up in heaven as well. While we're talking about the world, we call it pet nation. But is this a phenomena that goes outside of the United States? I know it's present in Canada to the same degree. I'm sure it is in the States. It is present in the UK, you know, in Great Britain, maybe not every corner of Great Britain, but they seem to have all the trappings that the American society and culture has with pets. And it is present in different parts of Europe. The Czech Republic, you know, Prague is a city a lot of people know and hope to visit in their life. And they have the highest per capita pet ownership in Europe. Very proud of that. They are proud of that. The Scandinavia, you know, Norway and Sweden and Denmark, particularly Norway and Sweden, have strong, strong pet cultures. And an interesting twist in their pet culture, which is anti-spay and neuter. They believe neutering, you know, a male dog is psychologically and, and physically harmful, not because of some legend, you know, in, in old Norse myths, but science, uh, and some of which is backed by a, a professor at the University of California, Davis Vet School. Um, so it's interesting. So you, you have pockets of Western Europe. In France, they were always ahead of letting pets into a restaurant. Now, we sort of stop at the end of the restaurant in Hawaii, Arizona, where I live. You can always have a pet at your cafe table outside, you know, and, and you just have to control the pet. But most American restaurants take the view that they can't be inside. Well, the French were ahead of the game on that. And many say that France has always treated pets better than kids. That's from stories of American tourists who take their children to parks in Paris and are, are ushered off the park by someone saying, you know, no kids allowed, which I, I've taken my kids there. I didn't have that experience. But <laughs> the French can be uh, they can be fairly uh, officious if they need to be. But um, so I would say yes to a degree. I don't think anybody has hit the ball out of the park in every fashion the way the American culture has. So I'm not planning the right pet world, but there are other places, I'm sure. Yeah. What do you know about Asia? I spent a lot of time, I used to spend a lot, back when we could travel, a lot of time in Asia. But what are your thoughts about Asia in general and maybe China specifically? Great question. There are two things a society does when they develop a meaningful middle class. And the history of China and the history of Asia as well, but China in particular over the last 30 years has been the development of a middle class. And that comes in China from Deng Xiaoping after Mao Zedong, after Chou Enlai, when he basically shifted towards the West, created you know, partnerships with the U.S., invited the companies in, 
people began to make real money in China. That's changing now for different dynamics we don't need to get into, to me, sadly so. But in any event, China, like all societies, when you reach a large middle class, two things occur. People get a car and they get a pet. And they're not just status symbols to show your neighbors, we're making money now, we have a car, we have a dog, but they're part of kind of the pleasures of life, the privileges of life. So you're seeing a large pet culture beginning to develop in China and in Asia, but it's different. It's more regulated, uh, not at the veterinary level, it's kind of the wild west in Asia as far as veterinary care. You can't quite be sure if somebody says, James, Go down this street, turn two blocks, you'll see a little alleyway, go there and knock on the door four times and, and a veterinarian's going to be there to, quote, take care of your sick dog. I'd be careful. You know, I, I, would, I wouldn't be so sure about it. But the enjoyment of pets, starting with food, cute little accessories, maybe putting a hat on for a party or a sweater on for a, a soccer game or something. Yeah, you're starting to see that in Asia for sure. It's got a long way to go. And I'm if it's allowed to, that'll become a huge industry, as it is in the States. You know, our the U.S. pet market's total economic activity is right around $110 billion now, up from $70 billion not that many years ago. And it's projected to be at $300 billion by 2030, so not even 10 years from now. I scare people by saying, you think there's a lot of dogs now and there's a lot of pets around now? You know, get your seatbelt on because we're just getting started here. And that's clearly ahead of China in Japan and some of the larger countries. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the lack of dogs, supply and demand, and the impact that the pandemic is said to have had on that. So I was part of a group, and I led the funding, not personally funding it, but getting the funds to study in 2015, so pre-pandemic by five years, just that question. Uh, I was intrigued by, we don't really know where dogs come from in this country, we just assume there's going to be plenty of dogs. Well, when a mommy dog loves yeah. a daddy dog. And that's or... what I understand. You know, I, I majored in history, not biology, but I, I have heard about <laughs> that. So in 2015, we did a study to determine how many dogs are in the U.S. and then what the annual need is, you know, due to death and replacement and due to new dog owning people. And it came out that we, we had a shortage that looked like in the two million range. Hmm. of which we've learned that about half of that's made up from dogs from foreign countries. And I can't just say overseas because some came from Mexico, from Central America, through Mexico, some came from Canada. But, and then the CDC, you know, Center for Disease Control, we've all gotten to know so well with COVID. Um, they came out in August of 19, right before my book came out, and I had time to use their study and say that we have about a million, 100,000 dogs from foreign sources. And only less than 3% come in with any medical records, vaccinations, or veterinary records. So these aren't dogs walking through customs. These are dogs that land in planes in the Midwest, and you never know the plane landed or left, or come in in big boats that you don't know what comes off that freighter in Long Beach or, you know, the port of New Jersey, whatever. So we have a shortage, and we have a shortage because of pet nation and the demand We've had a phenomenally successful spay-neuter effort in 10 years. Many states and most mandate spay and neuters for shelters. Um, we've had what I call the canine freedom train, which sounds ominous, but it's actually a good thing, where overpopulated shelters in the south and southwest send dogs regularly up north, quote, to use that phrase, 
And if you get a dog at the Oregon Humane Society in Portland, Oregon, it's not a stray dog in Portland that you're picking up. It's a dog that probably speaks Spanish that came up from, uh, from Long Beach. And so all those factors surprise people. And then we studied shelters and realized that they meet about 25% of the demand annually. And if you look at every other source, we were coming up short. Wait, shelters meet 25% of the demand? Yes. Roughly 25% of the dogs that Americans acquire, however they acquire them, James, annually, were coming from shelters. Well, they had to come from somewhere too, obviously. You know, they had to have a mom and dad at some point. So very controversially met by guffaws, complete derision, or just dismissal, I published, and the Washington Post published the research done by Mississippi State uh, very high caliber research and said, guess what, folks, we're running out of dogs. Then COVID hit and suddenly my phone's ringing from shelters saying, you were right. And I, and I, I didn't say, you know, send me a prize. I just said, we've been here for a while, but obviously now you see it. When people flooded shelters, adopted dogs, and you saw that picture that came from Orlando, I believe, you know, big shelter. And it was like a long row, maybe of 30 kennels on each side of the aisle and every door was flung open and there were no dogs. And so that's where we are now. And I have a conversation following the show immediately at the noon hour here in Pacific time, dealing with the question of a dog shortage and how do you address it? So it's a real topic of interest. So where does the whole adopt, don't shop thing fit in with the shortage that you're identifying? I put that phrase now in the hall of fame of other phrases in life that we just don't seem to use anymore because somehow culture or the scene changed, not because it's not a cool phrase, but if you say adopt, don't shop, great, go to your local shelter and see who you can adopt. And millennials in particular, James, they want the pet they want. Mm. They've done study. They've researched it. They know if they don't want shedding, they have one of the designer breed versions of a poo a cockapoo, you know, a, you know, all those different... Something with a poodle in it. Something with yeah. a poodle in it. And they aren't burdened by any, you know, ideological, political, moral duty to, quote, adopt rather than buy, number one. Mm-hmm. Number two, you don't have the supply and shelters available. So that ethic and issue, is there no one making that claim today? I'm sure there's someone, but, but it's no longer uh, powerful or of fashion. So the issue becomes this. No, we have three choices. Don't solve the issue and let dogs become a luxury item. You have to have 5,000 bucks right now to get a golden doodle puppy in the Western United States. Okay. Mm-hmm. Who's going to do that? You know, so there's that scenario, which nobody signs up for. And I fiercely oppose that idea. Nobody's seriously promoting, yeah, let's make dogs a luxury item. But that's the path we're heading on over here. So then the choice is we have to have plenty of dogs, plenty of moms and dads, having some fun and producing little puppies. And your sources are either foreign or the domestic. The foreign sources are often from kind of troubled, sketchy neighborhoods, and we have no clue what the medical and breeding standards are. But maybe that's the solution. If you don't want to worry about it in the U.S., just let those 15 countries know, send us all the dogs you have, and ideally coach them up a little bit on their methods. Not really, to me, a sustainable U.S. solution, but it could be the solution. So the third one gets you into that realm of puppy mills. Now, puppy mills are meant to describe breeding operations that are horrid, sanitation, environmental conditions, nutrition, treatment of the dogs, all that. 
and they exist and they shouldn't exist. But the words has morphed, very clever phrase that it is, into essentially describing a commercial breeding operation. Oh, you have 50 dogs and you breed them for a living, you must be a puppy mill. And proponents of that phrase or people that use that phrase at times will say, well, we're not saying all commercial breeders have puppy mills. And I'll push them a bit. And I don't represent any breeders, but I've just said to them, well, of course, you're not saying that, but you really mean that and probably really believe that. And they'll say, yeah, yeah, you're pretty much right. That's kind of how we see the world. So what's the solution there? We've done it in so many industries. You've got to get both sides in a room and you've got to say, can't we have standards of breeding and can't we have independent third-party auditors that certify that a breeder is using these standards, right? And can't we have a seal like you have at every coffee shop in America, fair trade approved, which told everybody that don't worry, Starbucks doesn't have slaves on their Ethiopian plantation getting that special Ethiopian roast that you like so much. The issue went away because they created that process. And I've used that example and said that's really what the pet world needs. But right now, the two sides couldn't get in the same room. They wouldn't last a minute. They don't trust each other. And breeders have been their own enemy, I think, because, you know, the thing they need to do is be transparent. If I had a breeding farm, I'd have cameras 24-7. I would challenge people. After you're done listening to the podcast, get on the web and study my operation and you find unnecessary waste. You find a dog being mistreated. You listen to see if if there's pain and so forth. That's what zoos did to some degree, right? Oh, yeah. I remember as a kid, you know, I define a jail as a concrete room with metal bars. That was the Portland, Oregon Zoo when I was a child. Mm -hmm. You had five cells, the bear cell, the tiger cell, the lion cell, the monkey cell. They had bars and it was a concrete room. It was very depressing. Mm -hmm. You know, if those zoos existed in America today, animal welfare groups have had them shut down. You couldn't even get through the protesters to buy a ticket if you were willing to, because zoos let TV stations come in behind the zoo. What a great story it was. People loved watching elephants be born. I mean, they loved talking to veterinarians about how do you feed this? How do you do a heart procedure on a snake? I mean, that was a great story. Disney World in Orlando, one of their number one attractions sold out every day is their veterinary center, right? They sell out the seats. They have a glass wall. You're mic'd up, Dr. James Jacobson, with a mic. You're about to perform a procedure on a hippo. Well, hell, if you know if you love animals, no kidding, get me a front row seat to that. That's got to be amazing to watch. So transparency hasn't been exactly the motto of breeders because they don't trust the outside world. So they're like, no, I'm not going to let you behind my laurel hedge to come in and film what I do or don't do. Just trust me. It's humane. And the answer is don't trust you. So that... That divide has to be bridged to have a sustainable long-term U.S. supply. And we'll, uh, you know, we'll see where that goes. How do you see that divide being bridged? You said you can't get them in the same room. And then it, things are, I guess, exacerbated by commercials that have been running for years, like the, you know, the, the Sarah McLaughlin. Sarah McLaughlin, yeah. 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 I don't joke, but I comment that, you know, that dog's 30 years old now, you know, and that's the one we see in that shelter. I think COVID's helped because I've seen an awareness that shelters, if they're not empty, they're close to empty. So it's pretty hard to argue that we have all the dogs we need in shelters. So just don't worry. And the other thing is the idea of hobby breeders, 
that's a phrase to choose. And that's, you know, you and your wife have a place outside of the city and you have two female dogs. Well, you're both working during the day. You're probably not home washing them. Nobody should have any comfort that a hobby breeder has higher standards. They just have fewer dogs. Mm -hmm. Do you think they have more veterinary care, you know, taking care of jobs and trying to make a little bit of money and whatever, you know, the answer is so... I think people are about to be ready to get into a room and begin to talk about it. Are you going to be a part of that process? I'm going to be a part of that process. You bet. And, and my involvement stems from the book. I've given a lot of speeches to animal welfare groups that I would never have thought of invited me, not because I've ever been on the anti side, but I'm associated with the corporate world because my clients are big veterinary practices and pharmaceuticals and pet food companies. And I'm not the bad guy, but they just don't see me in their world. And now I've got calls saying, um, you know, I read that chapter and you might be right. You know, it doesn't go usually any further than you might be right. But it's like, yeah, maybe we're at that point. And I said, well, good, let's let's have a conversation about it. So as we're future thinking, I want you to put on your prognosticator hat in the few minutes we have left and kind of look to the future. You talk about there's going to be a dearth. There is with this interest in more dogs, there's a dearth of veterinarians and more and more are getting trained. And where do you see that heading? Yeah, I get asked the question this way. What could slow down Pet Nation? What could be the wrench that just stops the car from functioning? And it's the shortages, shortages of dogs we've talked about. The shortages of veterinarians is acute. When you have most urban emergency clinics in America with a 48-hour wait, Guess what you can't call yourself if you have to wait 48 hours, an emergency clinic. Plan your emergency for 48 hours from now. Yeah, I just did a Fox TV LA interview for a 30-minute show they did on the shortages, driven by people's experiences of their dogs dying who tried to get into five clinics and were told no, you know, no room at the end. And so I'm involved very actively. I represent a number of veterinary and new veterinary schools. So I've been pushing that envelope for quite a while. And we've got to increase sizes. And we have to do one thing that human medicine did, gee, 60 years ago. You think we've seen enough of it to learn from nurse practitioners and physician assistants, right? So between a two-year out of high school RN and a postdoc MD, we have all ladders and steps on the ladder of human healthcare professionals. And absent those, I don't know the Hawaiian healthcare scene, but I do know in places like Appalachia, Absent a PA or a nurse practitioner, there are hospitals that have no health professionals in American towns. And so, and there's still shortages. So veterinary medicine has two-year vet techs and DVMs or veterinarians and nothing in between. And I'm really active right now. And there's resistance from some veterinarians, fearful that that'll take their job. That's going to take my income. Well, the answer is you can't handle your demand right now. And it didn't work that way with human medicine. So don't tell me that the presence of a veterinary type of nurse practitioner is going to do anything but allow them to do things that you could then not be required to do as a vet and you could be practicing medicine. So I think that's the next wave. And and if we don't do that, the problem gets worse. And you do wonder if people, either they find an alternative source through Google, hello, or through some other industry that says, we'll take care of it and we don't care if we're going to get sued, or they just say a pet's not worth it. You know, I'm not going to go through the pain of having a, a dog. And if he gets sick or she gets sick, I can't get any care for it. Telemedicine is a big part of the solution. I'm very involved in that. That's been resisted. But now you're seeing that resistance break down. 
there was a study last year, maybe we wrap with this, I think you'll find it really interesting. It was 90,000 cases of a telemedicine engagement by one company called WhiskerDocs, a terrific company based in uh, California, around the country, 90,000 calls. Of those calls, less than 20% needed to go to a clinic. So picture the scene, right? It's a parking lot outside a vet clinic in Maui or in, in Honolulu, and cars are lined up now because of social distancing to get in. Right. Well, 80 plus percent of those could be back home with their pet and their dog not struggling in the back seat or their cat because they did not need to go to the clinic. But how many human emergency rooms are swamped because that's where people choose to go because they can't get in somewhere else. And then you hear about the fatigue inside emergency rooms because they can't get a break. Mm. And they're not mad when you show up and you don't really have an emergency, but you think life wouldn't be better if they were steered to a different source. So that's coming with telemedicine. And, and I think we'll be happy with that. Mark Cushing, author of Pet Nation, The Love Affair That Changed America. Thank you so much for being with us. Take care. We'll see you. Good luck. Mark Cushing, author of Pet Nation, with a fascinating discussion of how dogs in particular have changed us and our world. There's so much food for thought in this discussion. And if you want more, you should pick up a copy of Mark's book online. We will have links in the show notes. I want to thank you for listening today. Please follow The Long Leash in your favorite podcast app. And don't forget, we have a whole bunch of shows here at Dog Podcast Network. You can find our award-winning podcast, Dog Cancer Answers, as well as our flagship show, Dog Edition. All the links to the shows are on our website at dogpodcastnetwork.com. I do have one small request for you before we go. If you enjoyed this show, please do us a favor, all of us a favor, and tell a friend about The Long Leash and about Dog Podcast Network in general so that we can grow our audience of dog lovers around the world. Thank you so much for hitting that play button today. I appreciate you spending some time with me. I'm James Jacobson, and on behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, we wish you and your dog. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast.